Okay. Very good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this year's Lakatosh Award Lecture. My name is Roman Frick. I will be your chair tonight. So the aim of the Lakatosh Award is to honour the late Imre Lakatosh. I'm sure you will all know Lakatosh was a renowned philosopher of science and mathematics, and he was a professor here at LSE until his untimely death at the tender age of 51 in the year 1974. He's the author of several important books in the philosophy of science and mathematics, and his thinking keeps shaping the discipline in which we work. The award is given for a book in the philosophy of science that has been published in the last five years. So that's the rule of the game, as it were. Uh, the award has been given for several decades now, and some of the most important figures in the field are among the winners of the award. It's therefore a really special pleasure to welcome this year's winner, namely Henk de Recht, for his book, Understanding, Scientific Understanding. Congratulations, Henk. So Henk is a professor of natural philosophy at Rotbaud University in Nijmegen. I hope I pronounced that approximately correctly. <laughs> so prior to his appointment in Nijmegen, he was professor of philosophy at the Free University in Amsterdam. And he has published widely in philosophy of science and the philosophy of physics. And he's, of course, well known for his work on scientific understanding. Let me tell you now how the evening will unfold. So Henk will speak for about 50 minutes now, and this is followed by about a 25 minutes question period, so we aim to wrap up at half past seven here. At that time, we will then all move to the Shaw Library. The Shaw Library is on the sixth floor of the old building, so it's the main entrance of the LSE. That's a, slightly Romanesque arch with the glass door. So go through this, fight your way up to the sixth floor, and then follow the noise of the glasses, and you <laughs> will find the Shaw Library. Now, before we go to the lecture, I'd like to thank all those who made the award happen. So that's first and foremost the Lutzis Foundation who endowed the award, and uh, it's due to the generous financial support of the foundation that we can run this. However, financial support is only a necessary and not a sufficient condition to make something happy. So it's also important to acknowledge the hard and ceaseless work of those who work quietly behind the scenes and eventually make it all happen. So on the academic side, these are the members of the committee and the selectors who write reports on the basis of which the committee then chooses the winner. And most importantly of all, it's the manager of the award, I'm Tom Hinrichsen. Tom, where are you? Here. <laughs> without um, Tom's guiding hand and without his relentless efforts, 
nothing would happen and nobody would be here tonight. So I think a round of applause for Tom as well. And now, without further ado, Henk. Thank you, uh, Roman, for uh, this uh, wonderful introduction, your kind words. And, um, well, let's start. Uh, I uh, want to uh, begin my uh, presentation with this thing working. Now it doesn't work. It, it worked. Oh. That's weird. Maybe... Right now? No. <laughs> well, we got stuck already. <laughs> well, we need some understanding here. <laughs> you can go to this one if you want, or this one. But okay. Yeah, this is it. Now, now this is okay. Yeah, this it works. Okay. Can I leave it at this? Oh. All right, so um, let me start by uh, paying tribute to uh, Imre Lakatos, after whom the award has been named. So Lakatos, as you know, as Roman told you, spent the greater uh, part of his career here at LSE, and he was one of the pioneers in the history and philosophy of science, and that's a tradition to which my work belongs as well. So by combining detailed study of the history of science with philosophical analysis, he wanted to get a better insight into how science actually works and what the features of good scientific research are. So as such, Lakatos's work has been a source of inspiration for many philosophers of science and the tradition of history and philosophy of science, or HPS as it's often called, is still very much alive today. Personally, I think that a combined historical and philosophical, philosophical approach is one of the most exciting ways to study science and one of the most fruitful ways as well. So in my lecture, I want to share my enthusiasm for this approach with you and tell you more about the research on which my book, Understanding and Scientific Understanding, is based. So the question with which I want to start is, what is the aim of science? Now, Obviously, scientific research can be pursued for a variety of aims, from purely intellectual aims to very practical ones. But if one would have to mention one central characteristic aim of science, the pursuit of understanding uh, appears to be a good candidate. And this was already observed by Erwin Schrödinger. He is one of my heroes, as you will discover and as you will see when, I re when you read the book. So Schrödinger was a physicist, but he had a very broad mind and a broad interest also in philosophy and history and many other things. And in 1948, he gave a series of lectures in Dublin, uh, which were later published in his book, a small book called Nature and the Greeks. And in this book, he discusses how modern science was invented in ancient Greece. And he asked, what are the peculiar special traits of our scientific world picture? And Schrödinger answers this question as follows. He said, he wrote, about one of these fundamental features there can be no doubt. It is the hypothesis that the display of nature can be understood. It is the non-spiritistic, the non-superstitious, the non-magical outlook. 
So scientists want to understand the world, and they appear to be quite successful in this respect. And here are two examples from physics that were front-page news in the last couple of years. So, on the one hand, with Einstein's uh, general theory of uh, relativity, large-scale uh, gravitational phenomena in the universe, such as black holes, can be understood. And the theory also predicts the existence of so-called gravitational waves. And a few years ago, as you will probably remember, these waves were finally observed after many year years of research, confirming Einstein's general theory. On the other hand, on the smallest scale, there's the theoretical discovery of the Higgs mechanism, which provides an understanding of why elementary <coughs> particles have mass. When experimental particle physicists discovered the Higgs mechanism, that was, or the Higgs particle, I should say, that was predicted by the theory, the discoverers received the Nobel Prize. So, understanding the world around us is a central aim of science. But what precisely is scientific understanding, and how can it be achieved? That's a truly philosophical question, and one that belongs to, I think, the heart of the philosophy of science. Philosophers who have already addressed this question have often related it to the activity of explanation. Scientists try to explain the phenomena they observe, and when they have found a satisfactory explanation, the phenomenon is understood. So understanding appears to be the product of scientific explanations. And since the 1950s, the nature of scientific explanation has been debated extensively in the philosophy of science, and many competing theories of explanation have been proposed. But much less attention has been given to understanding, to the understanding that results from such explanations. The views of understanding that have been offered can roughly be divided in two categories, and I will now discuss these in turn and show that both are misguided. The first view assumes that understanding is nothing but a subjective feeling, and accordingly it's perhaps of interest to psychologists but not to philosophers, because philosophers typically focus on the objective features of science. So, Think, for example, of Archimedes, who had his famous Eureka experience when he was taking a bath. Suddenly he understood how he could find out whether or not the king's crown was made of pure gold, with the help of the principle of upward buoyant force that was later named after him. And legend has it, as you probably know, that he was so excited about this that he jumped out of his bath and ran around naked through the streets of Syracuse, shouting, Eureka, I have found it. Now, of course, a good scientific explanation, eh, like in this case, can bring about such an ecstatic feeling of understanding, but it surely doesn't happen every time. And what is more, it can happen that a bad or incorrect explanation causes a similar feeling of understanding. I suppose that most of you know this from your own experience, at least I do. You think that you understand why something has happened, but later it turns out that there is a completely different explanation for it. The feeling of understanding doesn't distinguish between these cases, and it can accordingly be misleading. And some philosophers conclude from this that explanation is a respectable topic for the philosophy of science, but understanding is not. Now, I agree with them 
that we shouldn't attach too much value to the subjective feelings that can come with explanations, good ones or bad ones. But this doesn't imply that the notion of understanding can be completely ignored by philosophers of science. When we look at the history of science, you notice that understanding is not just a superfluous byproduct of explanations. And that can be seen, for example, in the early history of quantum mechanics, the theory of elementary particles and atomic structure that was developed about a century ago. The first quantum theory, uh, the first theory of atomic structure was published by Niels Bohr in 1913. And in the years that followed, physicists tried to develop more, uh, more generally applicable quantum mechanics. And in the middle of the 1920s, in 1926, there were suddenly two candidates for such a general quantum mechanics. On the one hand, the theory of matrix mechanics that was proposed by Werner Heisenberg. And on the other hand, the theory of wave mechanics developed by Arjen Schrödinger. And this led to a heated debate about which of these theories was superior. Questions of which theory provided more understanding and which theory was more intelligible played a central part in the discussion. And as you have already read on this slide, the debate provoked strong emotions on both sides. So Schrödinger wrote that he was discouraged, if not repelled, by Heisenberg's theory because of its unintelligibility. While Heisenberg told his colleague and friend Wolfgang Pauli in a letter that he found Schrödinger's theory appalling. And he added, what Schrödinger writes about intelligibility makes scarcely any sense. In other words, I think it is crap. Now, it might seem, of course, uh, in, at first sight at least, that this exchange is guided by subjective feelings, by emotions. But as I will explain later on in my lecture, the discussions between Schrödinger, Heisenberg and others about the way in which atomic structure can and should be understood were crucial for the development of quantum mechanics. So understanding is more than just a subjective feeling. A different take on understanding, the second category of philosophical views that I want to discuss suggests that scientific understanding is a form of objective knowledge. Knowledge that is produced by scientific explanations. For example, we know that since 1900, the average temperature on Earth has increased. We have objective knowledge of global warming. When climate scientists explain this phenomenon by pointing, for example, at the so-called greenhouse effect and the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, they have added more objective knowledge namely knowledge of the causes of, or, or of the cause of global warming. Now, according to some philosophers, the understanding that's produced by the explanation is simply a specific kind of knowledge. For example, knowledge of the causes of the phenomena. Now, I think that the view that understanding is a species of objective knowledge is more plausible than the idea that it's just a, a subjective feeling. But also this view turns out to be problematic when it's examined in more detail. And I will give you two concrete objections to it. A first problem is that knowledge presupposes truth. We can only know something if it is true. So if understanding of a phenomenon is the same as knowledge of the cause of a phenomenon, 
then we can only understand the phenomenon if we know the true cause of it. At first sight, of course, this might seem quite reasonable. Consider, for example, the medieval theory about planetary motion, which assumes that the planets move because they are pushed by angels. This theory doesn't give us any understanding, one might think, simply because it's not true. But while this seems to be a plausible argument, it always, uh, sorry, uh, it turns out that uh, not much understanding is left if you make truth a requirement for understanding. Uh, another look at the history of science makes this clear almost immediately. Many scientific theories from the past were quite successful at the empirical level. That is, they could describe and predict a host of observable phenomena in their domain. But most of these theories were later rejected and were replaced with new theories that describe and predict the phenomena even better. These new theories are often in direct contradiction with the old ones, which means that they cannot both be true. So, despite their empirical success, the old theories turned out to be false after all. Does that mean that the scientists who developed and defended these theories lacked any understanding of the phenomena that they could describe and predict so well with their theories? I think that that conclusion does not do them justice. A good example is Newton's theory of gravitation. This theory was, and still is, extremely successful in describing and predicting gravitational phenomena, such as the motion of falling bodies on Earth, ballistics, the tides, and planetary motion. But from the viewpoint of current physics, Newton's theory does not give us a true account of the cause of gravitational phenomena. As most of you probably know, exactly 100 years ago, in 1919, Arthur Eddington carried out his famous expeditions to observe a solar eclipse, and his observations of the bending of light by the sun confirmed Einstein's general theory of relativity. And ever since, Einstein's theory is regarded as the true explanation of gravitation. And his theory differs, differs in important ways from Newton's theory, in, in radical ways, actually, because according to Einstein, the idea that there ex exists a, a force of gravitation by which bodies such as the Earth and the falling apple are attracted to each other is a fiction. It doesn't exist, such a force. It, what happens, rather, is that gravitational motion is caused by the curvature of space-time in the presence of masses. So, does all of that imply that Newton did not have any understanding of gravitational phenomena because his theory turned out to be false? And does it imply that today's students in secondary school who still have to learn Newton's theory in their physics classes do not acquire any understanding, but rather misunderstanding? I don't think that that's the case, and I hope that you agree with me. The case of Newton shows that also theories that we now know are false can still give us understanding, at least to some degree. A second problem for the idea of understanding as objective knowledge is that there appears to be an essential difference between understanding and knowledge. Suppose that you know what the cause of a particular phenomenon is. Does this automatically imply that you understand that phenomenon? I don't think so. For example, I know that the fact that elementary particles have mass is caused by the Higgs mechanism. I just told you so. But how do I know this? I know this because reliable experts have told me so. But honestly speaking, 
I really don't understand it, even though I was trained as a physicist a long time ago. I just know it, and I, it's, it's, I'm sorry about it, it's maybe a confession, maybe some of you are shocked now, but I think, I'm not sure I understand it. So understanding appears to be more than just having some kind of knowledge. I mean, you can say, I know this, but do you understand it? But what is this more? Now, I think eh, that a philosopher who has addressed this question and has given a really insightful answer to it is Ludwig Wittgenstein. In his Philosophical Investigations, a book that was published in 1953, two years after he died, Wittgenstein shows in a convincing way that understanding is more than just possessing knowledge. Understanding also requires the ability to use that knowledge. And the idea that understanding is an ability, a skill, is one of the central elements of the theory of scientific understanding that I have developed uh, and that is the core of my book, Understanding of Scientific Understanding. So, let me tell you a bit more about what's in my book. In my book, I, uh, well, I start from an analysis of episodes uh, from the history of science, so half of the book, the second half, is our, consists of historical case studies. And I want to show uh, that understanding is not just a byproduct of scientific research, but that it plays a crucial part in it. But I also show that the criteria for what constitutes scientific understanding change in the course of history. And what is more, even at one and the same time, scientists sometimes disagree about what those criteria for understanding are. And such variation is possible because understanding is context-dependent. And this is the case because understanding always involves a thinking subject, an understander. And in our case, that's typically a scientist. So it's human beings who understand. And a human being is always part of a context, a historical and a cultural context, for example, or a disciplinary context in the case of scientists. And for scientists, uh, this context is, uh, this disciplinary context is in important ways determined by their education, by their background knowledge, and by the state of the art in their field. So, whether or not scientific theory can provide understanding is partly dependent on who the understanders are and what their context is. So to use the Higgs example again, maybe some people, hey, I, I, I'm pretty sure that some people in the audience today do understand on the basis of the theory of the Higgs mechanisms why elementary particles have mass, but I'm afraid that it doesn't hold for most of us. Well, maybe I'm insulting you, <laughs> but <laughs> this is my speculation now. We can discuss this uh, at the reception perhaps. Now, you might think that this shows that understanding is a purely subjective affair. Eh? Think back of this cartoon I showed you, eh? where Dennis explains something to Joey, and Joey, well, he's the one who doesn't understand why elementary particles have mass. He's, he has to do the understanding. And some people think that this subjectivity uh, means indeed that understanding cannot be relevant to scientific explanation because explanation should be objective and a generally valid relation. Uh, so explanation should be a relation between a theory and the phenomena it purports to explain. And that should be an objective, generally valid uh, relation. So 
if that's the case, then we could say that the theory of the Higgs mechanism explains why elementary particles have mass, but that, and that it doesn't matter who understands this and who doesn't. But I think that it's not that simple. When we look at scientific practice, we see that the relation between abstract theories and concrete observable phenomena is usually not such a direct one, but it's one that is mediated by models. Reality is a complex thing, and it's seldom the case that the behavior of a real system can be deduced directly from an abstract general theory. The usual situation is one in which scientists first construe a simplified, idealized model of the system, and then they apply the theory to it. And my approach to scientific understanding is based on this view of how models figure in explanations. And this is a view that was developed here at LSE by, by philosophers of science Nancy Cartwright, Mary Morgan, and also Margaret Morrison. And constructing such a model, um, I conclude, is an art. It's a matter of choosing the right idealizations and approximations. And there are no strict rules or algorithms for building such scientific models. It's a human activity that involves skills, and these skills can only be acquired in practice. So, scientific explanation has a human face. Scientists are humans who should be able to build suitable models. And whether or not a scientist is able to construct a model that relates the theory with the phenomena depends on two factors. On the one hand, the skills of the scientist, and on the other hand, the qualities, the properties of the theory. And there has to be a match between the two. So scientists should have the right skills to work with the theory, to use it for building models of the phenomena. And in other words, and that's my translation of this analysis, uh, the theory has to be intelligible to them. And I will explain this a bit more in detail. So I conclude that scientific explanations of phenomena do give us understanding, but that this requires that the theories used in the explanation are intelligible, where intelligibility is defined as the value that scientists attribute to the cluster of qualities of the theory that facilitate its use. So there's the match between the skills and the qualities, the properties of the theory. Because intelligibility, if you define it in this way, is not an intrinsic property of a theory, but it's a context-dependent value, which is related to the skills of scientists. It doesn't make sense, I think, to say that the theory of evolution, of quantum or, or quantum theory, or the theory of the Higgs mechanism is intelligible or unintelligible in itself. Whether or not these theories are intelligible depends on the context in which they are used. At this point, there may be a risk of confusion because the notion of intelligibility, which is of course closely related to understanding, is used for theories, while of course what we're after in science is understanding of the phenomena, understanding of the world around us. And therefore, the th notions of intelligibility of theories and understanding of the phenomena should be sharply distinguished. But my thesis is that there's also a relation between the two. The intelligibility of theories is a necessary condition for achieving understanding of the phenomena. I have concluded this from historical case studies of scientific practice, and today I want to discuss one of these, 
namely the case of the genesis of quantum mechanics. Now, quantum mechanics is a theory that's often regarded as unintelligible. Richard Feynman, one of the most brilliant physicists of the 20th century, famously said, stated, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Now, I don't think that Feynman meant to say that physicists do not understand the theory of quantum mechanics in the sense that they can't work with it, that they cannot do the calculations. A more plausible interpretation of his statement can be read in the famous Feynman Lectures on Physics, where he writes about the behavior of atoms. Even the experts do not understand it the way they would like to, and it is perfectly reasonable that they shouldn't, because all of direct human experience and of human intuition applies to large objects. In other words, even those who are well-versed in the theory of quantum mechanics have difficulty understanding a reality that behaves according to the laws of that theory. And Feynman suggests that this has to do with the counterintuitive nature of quantum, uh, quantum theory. And one of, uh, one of the examples uh, of this counterintuitive nature is, of course, the notorious wave-particle duality of light and matter, which makes an unambiguous visualization of electrons and photons and elementary particles impossible. And it was this kind of unintelligibility that played an important role in the early years of the development of quantum theory. I've already mentioned the clash between Heisenberg and Schrodinger. Heisenberg's theory, matrix mechanics, used a type of mathematics that was difficult and not well known at the time. And moreover, matrix mechanics was abstract. It was designed to predict observable phenomena such as the frequency and intensity of spectral light emitted by atoms. But it did not give any concrete description of their inner structure. The rival theory of Schrodinger, by contrast, wave mechanics, did promise a concrete visual model of atomic structure. It described atoms as complex systems of waves. Schrodinger's theory was also mathematically simpler than Heisenberg's matrix mechanics, because physicists were quite familiar with wave equations. So in the mid-1920s, the supporters of the two theories were in fierce competition, and in the debate about the merits of the theories, the notions of understanding and intelligibility played a central role. Schrodinger argued that a physical theory has to be visualizable, only theories that offer a visual image of reality can give us understanding of the phenomena. According to Schrodinger, visualizability is a necessary condition for scientific understanding because, and I quote him here, we cannot really alter our manner of thinking in space and time, and what we cannot comprehend within it, we cannot understand at all. Now, since wave mechanics promised such a visualization of atomic structure, it was, according to Schrödinger, superior to matrix mechanics. Only with wave mechanics can understanding of the phenomena be achieved. Now, Schrödinger wrote in German, and he used the term Anschaulichkeit, which has, and that's why I also want to uh, mention the original term, it has well, at least two meanings, a literal one, namely visualizability, and a more general, more metaphorical one, namely intelligibility. So intelligibility and visualizability are already associated 
in this term in some way. But as an, uh, he, uh, Schrodinger had another argument, an additional argument in favor of wave mechanics, and that was that he suggested that these visualizable theories are more fruitful, and that solving problems and applying the theory to new situations is easier if you have a concrete picture in mind than when you just have an abstract mathematical theory. And that actually turned out to be true. Schrodinger's theory immediately became far more popular than Heisenberg's theory because it was easier to apply and to use for the construction of models of concrete physical systems. I'm talking about the mid-1920s now, right? So it was, in other words, more intelligible in, my, in the way I have defined intelligibility. Okay, uh, but what about the uh, opponents of Schrodinger? They try to counter Schrodinger's argument by claiming that the understanding, scientific understanding, can also be reached without visualization. And it was in particular Heisenberg's colleague Wolfgang Pauli who fiercely attacked Schrodinger's position. So, of course, Heisenberg also attacked him, as we saw, in an emotional way, but Pauli had a bit more a philosophical attack on Schrodinger. And Actually, even before Schrodinger had published his theory, Pauli already criticized attempts to visualize atomic structure. So in 1924, he wrote a letter to Niels Bohr, and he compared, in this letter he compared physicists who try to visualize atoms to small children who like picture books. And he added, even though the demand of these children for Anschaulichkeit is partly legitimate and a healthy one, still it should never count as an argument for the retention of fixed conceptual systems. Because once the new conceptual systems are settled, then also these will be anschaulich. And now you have to think, of course, on, of the two meanings of the term anschaulich. So what Pauli suggested is that matrix mechanics is perhaps difficult to understand at first, it appears unintelligible, but this may change in the future. Once we are used to new theory, once we are familiar with it, we will find it intelligible even if we cannot associate concrete visual pictures with it. And when that has happened, the theory will be anschaulich, not in the specific sense of visualizable, but in the more general sense of intelligible. In the late 1920s, these discussions about visualizability and intelligibility led to a synthesis of the two rival theories a quantum mechanics that combined matrix mechanics and wave mechanics a very, into a very successful theory of atomic structure that still hasn't been superseded. And this historical episode illustrates how debates about understanding and intelligibility can stimulate scientific progress. What it also shows is that a theory that allows for visualization is, for many scientists, easier to use than an abstract theory. And you can see this because visualization remains an important tool for understanding, it's still an important tool for understanding today, also in quantum mechanics, in quantum physics, even though quantum particles are, strictly speaking, not visualizable. And a, a famous example is the discovery of electron spin, by the Dutch physicists Samuel Goudsmit and Georg Uhlenbeck. 
these two physicists found it hard to understand Pauli's abstract account of the properties of the electron in terms of, of, the, of quantum numbers. And they used their visual imagination. And Uhlenbeck later wrote, in Pauli's paper, four quantum numbers were ascribed to the electron. This was done rather formally. No concrete picture was connected with it. To us, this was a mystery. We could only understand it if the electron was assumed to be a small sphere that could rotate. And that's the electron spin that you see uh, visualized in this, on this slide. And this concrete picture of rotation is even today a useful guide for understanding in physics education and even in scientific research. But this does not, so visualization is still an important tool for understanding. We know that electrons are not these kind of small spheres, but thinking of them in that way can still be useful. But uh, I will argue that uh, this does not entail, that's part of my theory, my contextual theory, that visualizability is a necessary condition for intelligibility, as Schrödinger thought it was. It's a quality of theories that is valued by scientists in particular contexts. And um, why is it valued? Well, because it facilitates the use of those theories. But it's equally well possible that for some scientists, in some other context perhaps, abstract theories are more intelligible. And perhaps that was the case for Pauli and Heisenberg. And that contextual variation of in standards for intelligibility is, I think, characteristic for scientific understanding. So, to sum up. Scientific understanding can be achieved if the skills of scientists accord with the qualities of the theories that they use to build models and construct explanations. And if that is the case, those theories are intelligible. And whether or not it's the case depends on the context. Intelligibility in this sense requires that scientists are in some respects familiar, in some sense familiar with the theory that they have developed what may be called intuitive insight into the theory and its implications. And such insight shows, for example, when scientists can recognize qualitative consequences of the theory without doing exact calculations. The relevant intuitions can be developed. Scientists learn the skill. Uh, so how do they develop this? Huh? By learning the skills to work with the new theories during their university education and in scientific practice. And that's usually a gradual process. But in some situations, like in the case of quantum mechanics, radically new intuitions have to be developed. And this may require more effort. Think of Feynman's observation that even experts have difficulty understanding the quantum world because it is uh, so different from the everyday reality that have formed all of our intuitions, also the intuitions of the quantum physicists. But it appears that it's not impossible to reschool our intuitions in such a radical way. That at least is suggested by the work of researchers at Aarhus University in Denmark, who developed an online computer game called Quantum Moves, in which players enter a virtual world in which the laws of quantum theory hold. And this is a citizen science project. That means that everyone can join. So the players aren't experts in quantum physics. 
And the goal of the research, or no, the goal of the players is to solve problems in the field of quantum computation. And surprisingly, it turns out that human players achieve better results than computer programs that have especially been developed to perform this task. The results of this experiment were published in Nature in 2016. And the researchers themselves were surprised by the outcome, and they suggested that also in the domain of quantum physics, we should put more trust in the power of human intuition. I see the results of this experiment as a confirmation of my analysis of scientific understanding. Intuitions are important, but they can be trained and developed, and developed for example, by playing computer games. My sons will be happy to hear this, uh, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Now, understanding, yeah, that's my point, is partly a question of familiarization. But it's not just a passive familiarization that occurs after the fact. No, understanding has an active role in scientific research as it is related to the skills to use the theories in an intuitive way. And the thesis that one may uh, come to understand something when one becomes familiar with it will probably not sound very strange or very implausible to you. Eh? Uh, also in domains outside science does this seem to be the case. And as an illustration of that, I now want to switch briefly to a completely different topic. One that's also close to my heart, as close as philosophy of science. Perhaps, okay, maybe a little bit less closer, I should say, because otherwise my... Uh, and that's, it's music. Music, so by way of an intermezzo, I want to address the question, when and how do we understand music? Now, personally, I like classical music a lot, especially piano music. And many of you will know that one of the most famous classical composers of piano music is Frédéric Chopin. And here's a short piece by Chopin played by the pianist Vlado Perldemutter. you've heard this piece before, perhaps you've even played it yourself, it's not that difficult. But also if you haven't, and even if you're not a big fan of classical piano music, I guess that most of you will feel that you understand this music in some way. It will not be completely unintelligible to you. Probably no one in the audience will have thought, what are these, what strange sounds are these? I don't understand it at all. Right? But now listen to the next piece of piano, classical piano music.
was the second movement of Anton Weber's Variations for Piano Opus 27, played by Maurizio Pollini. And Weber was a composer from the so-called Second Viennese School, and he wrote his music in 1936 using the 12-tone technique, a method of composition that had been introduced by his colleague Arnold Schoenberg. And perhaps there are fans of this type of music in the audience, and maybe some of them know this piece, but I'm pretty sure that many of you will have some difficulty with it and will perhaps think that they don't understand this music. So, when do we understand a piece of music? Can Weber's music perhaps be understood only by experts, by musicologists who have sufficient knowledge of music theory and the history of music? If that would be the case, there's no reason why this would not also hold for the music of Mozart and Chopin. Why can ordinary listeners and music lovers, without much theoretical and historical knowledge, still have the feeling that they understand the music of Chopin? Is this only a matter of being familiar with it? I think that there's an interesting similarity here with scientific understanding. Understanding and appreciating a particular piece of music has to do in part with recognizing its structure. An expert in musicology can analyze and describe this structure, but ordinary listeners without such expertise can still in some way observe the structure. So after having heard works by Chopin and other composers from the Romantic era, you will become familiar with the structure of this kind of music. And it will be, this will make, you, make it easier for you to understand new music that's in, composed in the same style. And in this way, listeners can develop a, a, what you might call an intuitive insight with respect to music in a particular style. And this intuition can be used actively in order to understand new unknown pieces of music. So musical understanding can be the result of familiarization but it's not only a question of becoming familiar. Think of someone who listens many, many times to the short piece by Webern that we just heard, but never to other works in this style. He or she may come to like it and may feel that he or she understands it, but this does not yet amount to real musical understanding. Such understanding requires that they have developed intuitions about, for example, its musical structure. Intuitions that they can also apply to new music that they hear for the first time. And such intuitions will be developed only by listening to many different works in the same style. The understanding that music lovers without background knowledge in music theory and history can have is, I submit, comparable to the under intuitive understanding that the players of the game Quantum Moves acquires. They get used, eh, so the players of this online game, they get used to the laws of quantum mechanics by moving around in the virtual reality of the game and by developing the skills to solve new problems. Just like listeners develop the skills to understand and appreciate new pieces of music. So this discussion about intuitions and understanding music has led me to, in a way, to the distinction between experts and lay people. And that's a topic that I haven't addressed explicitly in my book, but I think it's an important topic and one that I want to focus on in my future research. 
So I want now to spend some time on this topic for the rest of my lecture. My uh, theory, my contextual theory of scientific understanding is concerned with the understanding that scientists have, the experts in a particular discipline. And the theory gives an account of the way in which, for example, physicists understand the quantum world, or biologists understand the evolution of species. But today, much science, most of science, is so advanced that it may seem that it's only accessible and intelligible to the specialists in the field. But if that is true, then we face a problem, because, especially in today's society, it's important that scientists communicate their knowledge and understanding to a wider public of non-experts. One reason is that many of today's societal problems can only be solved with the help of science. But most of these problems are so complex that collaboration between scientists from different disciplines is needed. Such interdisciplinary research requires that experts share their knowledge and understanding with scientists from other disciplines who do not have the same skills and expertise. And, more importantly, in many cases, not only scientists, but also citizens, citizens who are stakeholders, will have to be included in the debates about how to solve complex societal problems. Think, for example, of the problem of climate change, where, in fact, everyone, all of us, are stakeholders. So to solve a problem like that, it's necessary that experts from different disciplines and lay people understand each other, and that the relevant science is sufficiently accessible and intelligible to those who are not specialists. Another reason, I think, for making science intelligible to lay people is that scientists should explain to the public why their work is valuable. Today, as we know, science is often contested, and the value of scientific research is not taken for granted anymore. To some, science is just another opinion. And such views should, of course, be countered, not by an appeal to the authority of science, but by showing how valuable science is. And this means that scientists should be able to communicate their results, to make their work intelligible to the public. Now, if my analysis of scientific understanding is correct, and if such understanding is dependent on specialist skills, then the question arises how experts can communicate their understanding to an audience of non-experts who don't have these skills. And that's the question that I want to address in more detail in my future research. And today I can only present my first idea on these issues. So my hypothesis is that the difference between expert understanding and public understanding of science is a matter of degree, and that skills are also crucial for understanding by lay people. This topic, public understanding of science, has been a focus of attention already for a long time, since the mid-1980s, actually. There are, as you probably know, university chairs for public understanding of science. For example, in Oxford, where it was first occupied by Richard Dawkins, Dawkins and now by Marcus du Sautoy, if I pronounce his name correctly. Uh, there's also a scientific journal, Public Understanding of Science, which publishes research on the topic. Now, the traditional way in which one hoped to increase public understanding of science was guided by the so-called deficit model. That's a model that assumes that the general public simply has insufficient knowledge of scientific facts, 
And this can be easily remedied by communicating scientific knowledge to the public in popularized form. But unfortunately, the deficit model does not appear to work. That's clear, for example, from the failure to convert the anti-vaccination community. Critics of the deficit model argue that the reason for this is that the model is based on a one-way communication from experts to lay people, and that um, there's no attention paid to the context of these laypersons, the receivers of the information, for example, to their background, their interests, their values. Another reason, I would think, why the model fails might be that it assumes that understanding of science is simply knowledge of scientific facts. And I've argued already that this is a mistake. Understanding is more than just knowledge. It also involves skills. But that seems to imply that lay people can only obtain understanding of science if they acquire the same skills as the experts, which will make them experts as well. <laughs> and that appears to be impossible if one needs highly specialized mathematical or experimental skills for true understanding of science, then such understanding will be inaccessible to the wider public. Well, I hope and I want to argue now that the situation is not as bad as that. It might be that skills are needed, they are essential for public understanding of science, but that these skills can be of a different kind. A suggestion in this direction has been made by sociologists of science Harry Collins and Robert Evans. They claim that the expertise of scientists is indeed based on specific skills that lay people don't have, but that there are also other kinds of expertise. Beside the expertise that's needed to do scientific research, which they call contributory expertise, there's also interactional expertise, which is expertise in the language of a specialism in the absence of expertise in its practice. Now, Collins and Evans conducted an interesting experiment that showed the possibility of such interactional exper expertise. Collins, who is a sociologist without any experimental or mathematical skills, was for about 30 years immersed in the community of scientists who did research on gravitational waves. He observed the physicists who tried to find evidence for the existence of gravitational waves. He went to labs and to conferences, and he spoke with almost every scientist who worked on the topic. After so many years of interaction with the experts, Collins had learned a lot about gravitational wave research and had learned to speak the language of the specialists, even though he was still unable to do mathematical calculations or to do experimental research. Now, the experiment that Collins and Evans carried out was the following. Some experts in gravitational wave research compiled a list of questions about gravitational wave research, and these questions were answered by another expert and by Collins. And the questions plus the two answers, which were detailed answers, technical but not mathematical, they were shown to a panel of still other experts who had to guess eh, or determine which of the answers had been given by the expert and which one by Collins. And the result of this experiment was surprising because the experts were unable to identify Collins as the non-expert. 
In other words, he had acquired full interactional expertise, even though he wasn't a scientist. Now, I think it seems reasonable to say that people who have such interactional expertise also possess a high degree of understanding. They can have meaningful communication and interaction with scientists, and even though they can't do scientific research themselves, they can talk about it on the same level as the experts. Someone with interactional expertise does not only have a lot of factual knowledge, but also has the ability, the skill to use that knowledge and to discuss it in a meaningful way. So I conclude that there's still hope for public understanding of science if we acknowledge that understanding is more than just factual knowledge and that it also involves skills. I don't want to suggest that it's easy to communicate such understanding or to acquire it. I also don't want to uh, suggest that we all have to uh, become interactional experts in the way that Collins did with gravitational wave research because, of course, that's, we don't have time for that. But it's a matter of degree, so we can maybe try a little bit uh, better uh, for the fields that we think are important to understand. Um, so, uh, I think that uh, it's not easy, uh, but I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, that we should try uh, if we want to counter the anti-science mu uh, movement. And that's what I want to do in my future research. I want to investigate the conditions for successful science communication. Which skills would be useful for lay people in order to have meaningful discussions with scientists? How can scientists and science journalists popularize scientific research in such a way that non-experts -expert, acquire these skills? Examples of successful popularization do exist already. Richard Feynman, for example, was an absolute expert in quantum physics, but he was also very good in communicating his knowledge and understanding to lay people. Visual thinking was one of his strong points, and this helped him both in his scientific work and in his books and lectures for a wider audience. And today, with digital tools and the internet, the possibilities for science communication become almost unlimited. I want to end my talk with a fragment of a video clip from the YouTube channel Veritasium by physicist Derek Muller, which contains entertaining and instructive videos about scientific topics. I actually learned about these videos from my sons, Peter and Dan, who are in the audience today. So uh, they also contributed to uh, this talk. In the clip I'm going to show you now, the concepts of quantum entanglement and electron spin are explained. So uh, it's about a little bit more than a minute, so... Uh... In the 1930s, Albert Einstein was upset with quantum mechanics. He proposed a thought experiment where, according to the theory, an event at one point in the universe could instantaneously affect another event arbitrarily far away. He called this spooky action at a distance because he thought it was absurd. It seemed to imply faster than light communication, something his theory of relativity ruled out. But nowadays we can do this experiment and what we find is indeed spooky. But in order to understand it, we must first understand spin. All fundamental particles have a property called spin. No, they're not actually spinning, but the analogy is appropriate. They have angular momentum and they have an orientation in space. 
Now we can measure the spin of a particle, but we have to choose the direction in which to measure it. And this measurement can have only one of two outcomes. Either the particle's spin is aligned with the direction of measurement, which we'll call spin up, or it is opposite the measurement, which we'll call spin down. Now what happens if the particle's spin is vertical, but we measure its spin horizontally? Well then, it has a 50% chance of being spin up, and a 50% chance of being spin down. And after the measurement, the particle maintains the spin. So measuring its spin actually changes the spin of the particle. What if we measure spin at an angle 60 degrees from the vertical? Well now, since the spin of the particle is more aligned to this measurement, it will be spin up three quarters of the time and spin down one quarter of the time. So this goes on for about 10 minutes, so you can uh, try at home. It's really, it's fun. So, but as you saw, uh, he used the same visual analogy that inspired the discoverers of electron spin in the 1920s. And I think that this shows that maybe expert scientific understanding and public uh, understanding of science do not need to be so different after all. And that's where I want to end. And I hope that my talk has convinced you that philosophical analysis of scientific understanding is an important and interesting topic. And that my talk has given you some food for thought for at least this weekend and perhaps for the next week as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Henk. So we have time for questions now, and I would like to ask you to take the term question time seriously. Don't give a counter lecture. Please ask a question. <laughs> yeah, in the front. Here. Thank you very much for a very enjoyable lecture. Um, what I especially enjoyed was the discussing this as a human endeavor, you know, in terms of human skills and things like that. Given that, I don't understand what's wrong with Archimedes, with this aha phenomenon, because it seems like the purpose of science, the motivation for science, the goals of science can only be understood in terms of human motivations. And it's things, and so it seems to me that the goals of science are exactly the emotional experiences that scientists have. The goals? Or the the emotional experiences, yeah, right. the subjective experiences. Um, I remember for a while there was this um, complaint about using the passive tense in scientific publications. You know, that it implied an objectivity mm -hmm. that actually really wasn't there. Yep. And that is the joy of being able to understand things however that is conceived and it, in all of its varieties, yep. that's really the heart of science, including Archimedes, aha. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, so um, motivation, inspiration, I mean, is, is important for doing, for science, well, science is a human endeavor. That's, that's, where, we, that's where we are on the same ground. Uh, so it's, it's really important eh, to, to be motivated and, and there can be different kinds of motivations for doing science. Uh, there's nothing wrong with Archimedes. That's also, I don't want to suggest that. There's something wrong with the view uh, that uh, this experience, this aha experience, that's, that's what understanding is, and it's just an emotion. So the, the, the philosophers of science who I disagree with, uh, who think that understanding is just a subjective emotion and accordingly not relevant for doing science, uh, that's, uh, that's what I want to... They, I, I disagree with them, so I, I don't 
but I, I also, that's what I said as well, that's, that's true. I also don't think that pure emotion is a guide to understanding. That, uh, because, I mean, it doesn't give you a guarantee that you're on the right track. So it can motivate you, but, I mean, it doesn't give you uh, this guarantee. And, and that, that's my point. But I think we, we don't uh, disagree about, we, disagree, we agree about a lot, but, but um, there's more to science than just emotion, that's the point. Yeah. Um, gentleman here in the middle. Yeah. Right, I just wanted to ask about the centrality of intelligibility in your theory. Do you think an intelligible theory is a necessary condition for understanding of a phenomenon, for example? Or could that's... we have models, or if you have skills that you can construct a model with? Could that be understanding that is sufficient or uh, enough, essentially, without an intelligible theory? Ah, right. Okay. Yes. No. So, so of course. Yeah. That's so. My account, if I, as I, I've presented it here in a very concise, simplified way, of course. But still, it's it's also if you read the book, you will notice that theories are crucial. So we build models, but there are theories in the background. We build models. Be informed by theories or uh, because we want to apply a theory to a model and these theories can be highly um, detailed theories, uh, formalized theories like relativity, uh, theories in physics like quantum theory but they can also be more uh, basic theoretical principles uh, um, so it's always a theory there in the background and I think what you're hinting at, uh, that's a point, I, actually we discussed it yesterday in the workshop as well, uh, that some philosophers disagree with. They say we can also have models without a theory in the background and we can also, accordingly we can also have understanding. I tend to, well, uh, resist that idea, but it's, it's uh, well, it's an important issue for debate. Thanks. Simon. Yes, um, thank you. I, I found myself, uh, your, your thesis enormously persuasive. I was nodding along to it. Uh, I, un I understand <laughs> that understanding consists in, among other things, the art of approximation, the uh, ability to manipulate theories, to construct models of theories, the development of intuitions, and so forth. I think terrific. This all makes tr tremendous sense to me. And then I find myself asking, well, what did Feynman mean? when he said, I don't think anybody understands quantum mechanics. Because Feynman, after all, was a master exactly. in all of yeah, yeah. activities. Yeah, right, so yeah. what was missing from Feynman's I, Yeah, so I'm, I've, you know, there are these different, there are these famous quotes, and some of them are, it's even hard to find the actual source. It's kind of apocryphal, you know. So I, I think he's not, so I've tr I try to give an interpretation. Huh? So... So, when he says nobody understands quantum mechanics, he, I think he just wants to say, well, at the quantum level, huh, the world is so different from the, huh, the world that we experience huh, in our daily life, the observable world, and that's, it, you have to acknowledge that. I mean, and that's, in that sense, even the experts cannot understand it. Uh, and. That, that's, I cannot make, uh, that's what I think, I mean, that's, obviously he, he cannot mean that the experts can't work with the theory or have difficulty with it, it's just this. And, and I try to, you know, back that up with the quote from the Feynman lectures where he says, well, uh, uh, 
it's, it's because our human intuition applies to large objects and so on, so we, we don't have in, developed intuitions for this quantum world. And then I think, and that's this interesting research by uh, this uh, game, uh, citizen science project with the gamification, that well, perhaps in virtual reality we can uh, uh, run around and develop the intuitions that we can't develop by just going to the supermarket and uh, doing our, uh, buying our groceries. But, I mean, we can't ask Feynman anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> he was, of course, also a master, not only in visualization, but also in, you know, uh, these aphorisms and quotes and so on. So, uh, what do you think? Oh, you don't know, yeah. <laughs> you just said that. Uh, it does suggest there is something else going on in what he saw as the foundation of more that he was asking for more than just and I wonder what that could be within your framework I, mm. I, think, I think within the philosophy of physics world we, we have various ways of framing this in terms for example the problem of measurement yeah. uh, and uh, the but question of how probabilistic and deterministic uh, so you processes mean... get into quantum theory when it's deterministic at the Schrodinger mm -hmm. equation mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so stark as it were tensions, perhaps even contradiction, so that could be the fuel of his comment. Mm -hmm. But I wonder now, because after all, most physicists do not think that quantum theory is problematic and mm -hmm. resist the idea that yeah. somehow it is un incoherent or inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's an open question for you and for me, perhaps. Okay, but... <laughs> so, I think, so, as I understand you now, you suggest that Fein was asking for the, an interpretation. We're posing an interpretational question. And this is something that, well, is, that's, that's not what my theory of scientific understanding is after. It, so it's more like, um, how can we do research? How can we develop science? And maybe interpretational questions, philosophical questions, can be sources of inspiration for it. But, uh, but it's a fascinating issue. Yeah. The lady in Thanks. the front here in the black jumper. Prior to becoming an atheist, I was discouraged from learning about science, more specifically the origins of existence, and this was because the details were relinquished to a deity. How can we promote scientific lit <clears throat> how can we promote scientific literacy? when the effects of organized religion often translates in a mistrust of science. If we look at the US, some schools make it compulsory to te uh, teach creation stories and recent abortion laws are also indicative of this. Religion manages to seep into every fabric uh, facet of society. My question is how can we maneuver maneuver this while still promoting uh, scientific literacy, which I think is of paramount importance when we have such a large mistrust of science in the uh -huh. communities where religion is prevalent. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I fully understand the question, but I, I think that what you're saying is that public understanding of science is important and we should uh, try to uh, counter this anti-scientific uh, movement. Uh, but that there are other forces that prevent us from being success successful there, right? 
And so your question is, how can we do that? How, is your question, how can we deal with these counter forces? Which basically, for instance, how can we need scientific literacy to promote it more? Yeah. I would say by, by science education, by popularization, by actually by, uh, well, learn, teaching people about science and not just in the way uh, of uh, saying, well, science is an authority, you have to accept that scientists are the experts and they know how the world works and how problems have to be solved, but by teaching the skills so that you can also um, interact and communicate with people who think completely differently. And that's obviously, uh, it's, it's, more easy, it's e easier said than done, uh, because some people are so dogmatic, that, and uh, that also counts for, for instance, anti-vaccination movement, uh, so I mentioned that, but uh, there are problems in practice, of course, but we should never give up, I think. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. Um, I have long felt that scientific intuition is an extremely important part of the philosophy of science and vastly underrated. So my question is this. You've mentioned a physicist like Schrodinger, a philosopher like Wittgenstein, who placed importance on the notion of intelligibility and trying to spell it out. Within the specialist philosophy of science literature, are there any precursors who stress the importance of intuition in their work? Precursors? Precursors. Are there... Of me or, I mean... Yes, of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I, that's, yeah, thanks for your question. Um, it's, I, I'm, I should say that for a while, I'm, I, so I've been working on this topic, on the topics of understanding for, for almost 20 years now, and there was a time when I thought, okay, I should stop using the term intuition because it scares people away. It's uh, they, uh, like, um, also intelligibility, uh, sometimes people thought, okay, he's kind of, become, uh, he's, this, he's an Aristotelian who thinks that there are self-evident principles that are intelligible, and, and also intuition. Um, of course, you have a Kantian uh, aspect, Anschaulichkeit as well. But so I was for a while. I just decided not to use that term. But um, now I think, um, well, I should come out of the closet again and think, <laughs> say it's important. Also, there's, uh, for instance, in uh, there's the, the interesting discussion, of course, with with Kahneman. Hey, you know his book, uh, Science. What's it? What's the title in in English? Uh, any crowd so, crowd, hmm? thinking fast and slow, right? Yeah, so the, the fast thinking is the intuitive thinking. It's the using the heuristics and so on. And, that's, and then you have Gerd Gigerenzer who's emphasizing this even more. That's the kind of intuition that I think is important here. And Kahneman actually gives in his book a lot of criticism of it that it can be misleading and so on. But it doesn't mean that it's not relevant, that it doesn't exist and that we should avoid it all the time because otherwise we wouldn't be able to move around in the world and also not be able to do science, I think. So um, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, well, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Camilla on the back here. Yeah. 
Thank you. I have a question uh, with regard to your music example. So it seemed to me here that you equated understanding with appreciation. And at least as I understand appreciation, that's very much a subjective factor. Uh, so I was just wondering how you relate appreciation of music and understanding of music and how that relates to the debate on understanding in general. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I hope you enjoyed this intermezzo, the musical intermezzo. Uh, this is, of course, not my expertise, although I, um, I've always wanted to go a bit more deep, uh, a bit deeper into it. And I think because there are these similarities that it's an interesting topic perhaps for writing a paper about either for uh, philosophy of music or philosophy of science journal, we'll see. But um, you're right, I, I just, well, I conflated them or I, I combined them, so I think uh, you appreciate it, you li like it, and you also understand it. But I didn't want to suggest that it's the same, right? Uh, so, uh, for instance, <coughs> so I think understanding is more than just, you can also understand music that you don't like, perhaps. And, uh, but, but Typically, hey, the music that you like, that you appreciate, is also the music that you understand. Um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you take this piece by Webern, right, uh, then my, my claim was, it's, it's, of course, it's, uh, these are my suggestions. Uh, this is not uh, based on uh, years of research. But my claim is that if you can maybe come to appreciate that music if you hear it a lot, that particular piece, uh, and you feel that you understand it, but, well, do you really understand it? I would say no, uh, because, and that would be, inter maybe we can, this can be tested empirically, uh, because if you then hear other pieces, uh, completely different pieces, in the same uh, Schoenberg 12-tone uh, uh, style, <coughs> then maybe you don't understand them, you don't appreciate them. That, that would be my hypothesis, that you just learn to uh, you, you just become familiar with this single piece, and you may even like it because you know what, what will happen, what, when it's ended, what happens, and you know the sounds. And it might be something that you like about it, you appreciate it, but you don't understand it. And understanding is so internalizing skills to appreciate the kind of music, and it's not, uh, you don't have to be able to articulate this, this, this understanding, just like these players in, in the, uh, the quantum moves game. They just can move around and, and make predictions and solve problems and so on without being able to articulate uh, the rules uh, or their understanding. But uh, it's, I didn't want, yeah, that's, that's maybe suffice for the answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. I, made so many notes in answer to the last few questions, I don't quite know where I am, but um, okay. the point I wanted to make was that aren't the huge issues of public uh, perception and belief here, and also um, enjoyment, I mean, what people like, what they want to hear in music, what they want to believe, uh, that they're told by uh, interactive expertise from, from, uh, from the science. And I think in terms of interactive expertise, um, we should be careful what we wish for, because those people who can do that stuff are not, and are not, not the experts, they are more likely to gain an audience and get public engagement, get people on their side. Mm -hmm. And in a way, we have to be very careful about that. I'm going to stop there. Um, so, I'm, yeah, but you have to explain a little bit 
more what you uh, what your question is. What's yeah. your question? Yeah. That's maybe yeah. The question is aren't there huge issues here of public perception and belief? Of, of public perception and belief. And belief, yeah. Scientific information, forgive me. Right. In what we can put out as scientific information and understanding. Mm -hmm. And I just went on to go on about the fact that people who are not the experts, but are able to engage in the interaction expertise that you mentioned, mm -hmm. they are the people that get the audience. Because at the end of the day, the good science that we have, yeah. we want people to understand it right, sure. and we want their understanding to be so good that we end up with a perfect world <laughs> where we, we, we get everybody is inoculated properly, we know we're, right. we, we're overeating the planet. Um, <laughs> sure, but, yeah. but we may not get there because of these obstacles. And the obstacles are the... Uh, the obstacles are that people who can do what the lady has gone yeah, to think right. now. Yeah, but so it's the point that she was making. It's related to that point. Yeah. 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 Well, again, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I... So, I don't want to... Uh, I, we, I, I mean, there's lots of problems to be solved in the world, uh, but the world doesn't have to be perfect, right? <laughs> That's at least my view. Uh, so, science doesn't have to rule the world, that's one thing. On the other hand, um, there are these, well, uh, uh, difficult problems of uh, forces that, that, that counteract and, and also uh, people, you know, the, the, uh, so the people who get most attention are not the people who know best or uh, have the most insight. These kind of things we just have to well, not accept, we, we have to deal with, and, and we should never give up trying to... Everybody uh, wants, I, I everybody wants to rule the world. says <laughs> <laughs> to continue that. Well, I don't. Explain the gentleman with the black glasses here. No, no, here. here. Thanks. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, I had a question that sort of um, puts the other question on its head, in a sense, um, and the belief of maybe scientists and experts in, in terms of the question really looking at the possibility of scientific pluralism or what's sometimes called the politics of experience. So for example, you mentioned the familiarity that's necessary to have understanding. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking that sometimes psychologically we react to fam familiarity differently. Thinking in psychiatry, um, you may have the kind of familiarity which leads to repression, to use a Freudian expression, mm -hmm or other defenses, mm -hmm. psychological defenses, that then lead experts to choose to focus with their scientific epistemological values on various topics which fit those um, psychological preferences and beliefs. So I suppose my question is, the familiarity um, is key for understanding, but has it I suppose, led to um, certain familiarities being um, pushed out of sight. Right. And, and yeah. what, can we call that science, or is it more politics? Thank you. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, the politics... Uh, so, well, that's a difficult one, too. Uh, I think what you're suggesting is... Um, so my, I'm emphasizing the, the, the importance of familiarity, right? Getting used to, uh, um, well, acquiring skills by becoming familiar with a world or a virtual world or a scientific world that you are uh, moving uh, in. But 
uh, it might be, and that's what I take it that you are saying that we are also excluding, that we are then um, excluding, well, maybe, yeah, excluding certain parts of the world. Uh, is that it? Of, of experience, sometimes. Of experience, right. It might be called folk, folk psychology, perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we... It's, uh, yeah, I have to think about that more. I'm sorry, I, I, I think, well, I'm not completely sure what you mean. I, I have to think about it, and uh, I don't have an answer. It's a wonderfully Socratic note to well, end on. We still have a very long list, and I hope you forgive me if I cannot take your questions anymore here, so you can talk to Hank further over champagne. So let's all move to the <laughs> Shaw Library, but before we leave here, give Hank a big round.